today's sermon text is 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Our preschoolers can be dismissed to their class. Preschoolers, y'all head on out to the back doors. Everyone else who's remaining in here, I do want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word if you have one with you and turn with me to 1 John. 1 John's a letter in the New Testament if you're newer to the Bible. Um, it's toward the end of the whole book, the end of the New Testament. Just go all the way to Revelation, the last book, and flip back a little bit and you'll find 1 John. We are in 1 John chapter 5. The chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the little numbers. Chapter 5 is the last chapter in the letter of 1 John. We've been walking through this letter since the end of August. We will finish it up on November 20th, so we have three weeks left, three passages left. We will take uh, 1 John 5 in uh, three different chunks, um, even though they are individually pretty short. Uh, there's a lot to see in these passages. And at the end of the month, on November 27th, right after Thanksgiving, that's I didn't make the church calendar. That's just when Advent starts. Um, that, that Sunday is when we will begin Advent. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that as we will be anticipating and preparing for the coming of Christ as we celebrate that and as we look forward to his return. But for now, we'll be in 1 John 5. Now, if you remember the context of this letter, why was it written? What, what, is, what is John doing here? John is an apostle of the Lord. He is writing to his spiritual children, uh, men and women that he likely pastored in uh, Asia Minor, uh, maybe churches in the city of Ephesus. We don't know exactly, but we think that that's probably likely true. That's where he was pastoring. And so he's writing this letter to them because there were false teachers who had broken off from the church, and these false teachers had started to believe and started to teach that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God, that Jesus was not God in the flesh, that Jesus was not the Messiah. And so with these people that were members of this church breaking off and teaching these things, it created a lot of confusion among the believers in this area. And so John wants to write this letter to assure them of how they can know that they know God. How can they know that they have eternal life? And he, throughout the letter, has given, uh, we've seen, at least three tests to show them that they do truly belong to God, that, that they are known by him and that they know God. In the process of providing them this assurance, John is also showing his readers how they can grow in Christ. So it's sort of the letter sort of has a dual purpose. On the one hand, if you're struggling with assurance, if you're doubting, if you wonder whether or not you're a Christian, it's a wonderful book for you to, to read. It's great. If you're counseling someone, if you have a friend, relative, uh, a sibling who is struggling to know whether or not they are truly believers, 1 John is a great place to take them. It's a wonderful place to counsel someone who's struggling with that. But on the other hand, this is also a wonderful letter that shows us how we grow in Christ. How we grow. 
And I love what we find here in 1 John 5. These opening verses, the first five verses of chapter 5 here, John is essentially giving us a roadmap for spiritual growth. And he's doing it by giving us a vision of what a true Christian actually is in totality. So this whole time, he's been breaking down all of these different tests that you can apply to yourself, the doctrinal test. Well, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, yes or no, yes. You can be sure that you know God. Okay, the, the relational test. Do you love other people? Do you love God? Do you love one another? If the answer is yes, then you can be certain that you know God. Well, the ethical test. Do you keep God's commandments? Do you obey him? Do you seek to align your life with his will? If yes, you can be certain that you know God. So he's, he's kind of taken these individually and shown us, okay, you can be, be assured in this way. What he does here at the beginning of chapter 5 is he combines them all together and he says, and here's the, here's the total picture. Here's, here's the goal. Here's, here's the purpose. Here's who we are going to be. And I want to ask you right at the beginning, what is your vision for the Christian life? What's your vision for the Christian life? What, what is your vision of an ideal Christian? Who, who is a Christian? Who is the Christian that you want to be? When you think of an ideal follower of Jesus, what does that look like to you? And depending on your background, your experiences, the, the influences that you've had in, in your life, your, your answers may differ from one another. Some of you may think the ideal Christian is the person who, who sells everything that they have and moves to the other side of the world to, to reach un, unreached people. Some of you may, may think of, of someone who is, is in the ministry, you know, a pastor or, or someone who's in a seminary training pastors. And some of you may just think of an ordinary Christian who is just faithful through thick and thin. Someone maybe who has suffered a great deal and they continue to be faithful to the Lord. And you're like, that is the ideal Christian. That's who I want to be. And our experiences inform that. Well, all of that is, none of that is wrong. But what John is doing here is giving us a little bit more of an objective vision. An objective vision for who we are meant to become as Christians. He shows us what can get in the way of us becoming that. And then finally, he shows us the path we need to take in order to reach it. So really what I want to do is, is show you three things as he's sort of closing out his, his argument here. I, I want to show you three things about the Christian life and how we grow. Three things. First, I want to show you where we are going as Christians, where we're going, where we're headed. That's where we'll talk about the purpose of the Christian life. Second, I, I, I want us to talk about what's in the way. What, what, what are some obstacles to the Christian life? And finally, I, I want to show you how we can get there. So I want to show you where we're going, where we're headed. I want to show you what, what gets in the way of us getting there. And then I finally want to show you how we get there, the path of the Christian life. We find all this here in 1 John 5. Okay, where we are going, the purpose of our, of our growth in Christ, or the purpose of the Christian life. You know, anytime you take a trip, this sounds obvious because it is. You have to know where you're going before you map out how you get there. You have to. You have to know the destination. You have to know the destination before you can actually map out where you're going. And, and the path that you take primarily, not, not you know, uh, entirely, but primarily depends 
on the destination itself. You know, my dad, he used to tell uh, all of these different stories about this basketball coach that he knew from eastern Kentucky. And this guy was, I never got a chance to meet him, but I felt like I knew him because I heard so many stories about him. But he was sort of like a redneck Yogi Berra. I don't know if you, you guys are familiar, like Yogi Berra, he'd have all those like really funny sayings, and, and th- this coach was one of those guys, like he was unintentionally funny, like he's saying something really serious, but it's just hilarious when he says it, just the way he says it, it's really pithy, and sometimes he puts his foot in his mouth and just says, says ridiculous things, but he was sort of like a redneck Yogi Berra in, in a sense, like he almost had that like mountain wisdom, you know, and so uh, he would always tell the story about how uh, there was one season where he was coaching this team. Uh, they won the district championship, and they were about to, to go to play in the region uh, championship or tournament in, in a town in eastern Kentucky called Cumberland. Okay, there's a town in eastern Kentucky called Cumberland. Now, between the location of his team and Cumberland is a town called Harlan, Harlan, Kentucky. All right, so the, the parents were asking. It wasn't overly familiar to them, so they're like, okay, uh, how do we get to Cumberland? How, how do we get there? And, and the, the coach looked at all the parents, and he was like, well, you can't get there from here. You can't, you can't, get, you can't get to Cumberland from here. You've got to go to Harlan first. You, know? you can't get there from here. And so Red, he, that was his name. His name was Red. He, he was just like, no, you can't, you can't get there from, from Manchester. You have to go to Harlan, and then when you get to Harlan, then you can get there, which is ridiculous. You know, Red wasn't great about his starting point. Maybe he knew his destination, but he, he wasn't great. It's like, no, Red, you can get here from Manchester. You just have to go through Harlan to get there. And so he was always hilarious when it came to talking about trips and destinations and where we're going. Listen, before we can benefit from the path of the Christian life and how we get there and the roads we take and whether we're going through Harlan or we're going around the mountain on another side, before we do that, we have to be abundantly clear about where we're even going in the first place. What is the goal or purpose of the Christian life? And there are a few observations we need to make. First, the Christian life is a journey. It's a journey. And, and this should be obvious, and it's almost cliche. You've probably heard it so many times. But, but one of the, the key metaphors that Jesus gave his disciples for a life with him is for them to follow him. He calls his disciples, his original disciples, he goes to them and he says, come and follow me. That, that's an important metaphor. And they literally left what they were doing at the time and actually followed after Jesus. But even after Jesus has ascended into heaven, What are we called? We are called his followers. We are still following him today. It's a powerful metaphor. And the reason that they followed him and we follow him is because Jesus is taking us somewhere. From the first moment of faith in Jesus, we are called to follow him, which means that he is leading us. This is is the initial observation we need to make. We're, We're not just floating around aimlessly. Like as Christians, God calls us to himself in Christ to take us somewhere. Following Jesus is a journey. And I know that we don't actually like that very much. We don't like it. We, we, don't, we don't really have, you know, we're not required to journey anywhere, if you, if you think about it. It's not required of us. Everything for us is pretty immediate. You know, the, the greatest adventure or journey that we'll take in a given week is if we have to take all of our kids to Walmart, you know, it's like, that, now that is a journey. That, that is an adventure. But that's, that's about it, you know. We're not going to leave our worship service today and all the men get together and say, all right, boys, let's go. Let's go on a hunting trip so we can get our food for the week. Like, we don't, we don't have, like, natural 
necessary journeys or adventures that we have to take. They, we, they have to be created. They have to be curated. They become vacations for us. And that's because we live in an expedited culture. Everything is immediate. Everything. So when you think about your growth in Christ as a journey, we become agitated. Because if growth in Christ, if the Christian life is a journey, that means that you are not yet where you will one day be. You're not there today. So you may want to grow in a particular area, but it takes time and you get agitated, you get frustrated. Failing to recognize that the Christian life is a journey can, can actually fuel a ton of doubt and it can, fuel, it can lead you to struggle with assurance. You know, we, we want to immediately reach maturity. We, we want to immediately see transformation in our lives. You know, you, go to, you ever been in a Bible study and you read something or you're sitting and you're listening to a sermon and you're like, that makes so much sense to me. And it just clicks. And you're like, I, absolutely. Like, I think the reason that I don't have a good prayer life is because I, I haven't really established any good rhythms for prayer. I don't have a time I set aside for prayer. That makes so much sense to me. I'm going to go do that. And then you wake up tomorrow and you wake, and then you wake up for church the next week to come back to church. And you're like, Oh, man, I didn't pray again this week. And it's frustrating. And so what happens is you start to wonder, this, this growth, this Christian life is taking so long, you start to wonder, am I even a Christian at all? Doubt is fueled. Assurance is, is significantly doubted. We need to remember that as we follow Jesus, he is taking us somewhere even when it does not feel like we're making, making much progress. The journey takes time. It's a journey, though. Okay, second observation we need to make before we say anything else about this passage. So the Christian life is a journey. Second, whether you agree or not that it's a journey, whether you intentionally follow Jesus or not, or whether you intentionally follow anything in this world or not, maybe you're just completely aimless in the world and you feel like you have no purpose whatsoever, you're still going somewhere. If, if, you, if you walk outside and you just start walking, you just start walking down McCullough, you may not even know that's McCullough. You may not know. You may have no clue what's on the other side, but you're walking, you're still going to get somewhere. Whether you know where you're going or not, you are still going to get somewhere. Um, we are all moving toward something. Whether we are intentional or not about it, our minds and our hearts are being shaped into the image of something every single day. Every single day, whether intentional or or not, you are becoming either a more self-controlled person, or maybe you're becoming a more out-of-control person. You, you, you are becoming more, a more loving, patient, compassionate person, or maybe you're becoming a more bitter person. Regardless of how intentional you are about that, because of the influences around you, because of the, the information and, and literature and, and, and media that you intake, you are going to be shaped into the image of something, even if it's just the relationships that you have. And you cut yourself off from the whole world and you just have this small band of people. You will be shaped into their image. They will be shaped into your image. You are being shaped into something. You are becoming something. So, actually, a very good initial question if you're doing like spiritual diagnosis of like you know where am I right now what is my spiritual health a really good question to ask yourself is who am I becoming what kind of person am I becoming okay third so the Christian life's a journey we're all going somewhere third God 
desires us to become people who love him and other people. That's, that's God's desire for our ultimate destination as Christians. The end of the road, the ideal for us is to become people who are so captivated with God that we just overflow in joy and love for him and we love other people as ourselves. So John's concluding his letter here. He, he takes these three tests, he unifies the assurance tests together that he's been unpacking throughout the letter. And through this linking of faith and love and obedience, there's a sense in which, as I said earlier, we can see a whole person, a complete person forming. And this, this is the goal or the purpose of the Christian life. It's, it's almost as if what John's doing here is creating a mold for humanity. And he's saying, look at this. This is who you are meant to become. And the center of this, of this whole argument is love. He's given us the test, the doctrinal test. We know God if we confess faith in Jesus. The relational test. We know God if we love one another. The ethical test. We know God if we keep his commandments. And now here in 1 John 5, he brings it all together and follow with me, starting in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. I want you to see. When you read this for the first time, it's so choppy. It's, it's sort of hard to, to untake. It feels like a mess. But that's what John's doing. He's weaving all of this together into a beautiful tapestry. Look. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Okay. John is weaving. These, did you notice the three tests? He's weaving them all together. He's forming this, like, this chain of causation. The new birth, born of God. The new birth leads to faith, which leads to love and obedience. Now, now, one reason I think John's doing this, just kind of sidebar, I think he's doing this to emphasize that assurance is not just found through one of these tests. You can't, you can't find assurance as a Christian like, oh, I'm good, I'm good, if you just love other people but you don't believe in Jesus. You know, because, you know, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus might could go to one of these tests and say, Oh, I'm confident I truly know God because I love other people. That's what the Bible says. That's what John says. And John's like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't claim to know God even if you love other people because you're not trusting in Jesus. There's another test here, and it's, it's woven together. You also can't say, well, well, well I, I, believe, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. That, that should be enough, right? And it's like, but you hate your brother. You're a walking contradiction. We're after whole people. It's like you can't just be a part. You can't just be like, well, I'm just a person of faith. I don't really love anyone. Or, you know, I love everyone, but obedience to God's commands, you know, I don't, I don't know that they're relevant anymore. I don't know if I should really care that much about aligning my life with what he wants. I love other people, though, and I believe in Jesus, so that really is all that matters. Now, this is Christian growth. He's saying that we are growing into a whole person. If you follow his logic, he's saying... Our faith in Jesus is evidence that we have been born again. And from this new life, 
We are then empowered to become people who love God's people on the one hand and love God on the other hand as we are keeping his commandments or aligning our lives with his will. And no matter where you start in this passage, so if you started back down in verse 5 and and made your way back up, or you start in verse 1 and go back down, love seems to feature right at the center. If you start in verse 1, like I said, new birth leads to faith, which creates love. If you start back in verse 5 and you go backwards, it says, we overcome the world. Well, how do we overcome the world? Through faith in Jesus. Why do we have faith in Jesus? What's created by the new birth? Which then, if you keep going up, makes it possible for us to obey God and keep his commandments, which is the very essence of love itself. He's giving us a vision. This is who we're supposed to become. So a good way to evaluate your growth as a Christian is to evaluate whether or not you're becoming a person who is loving other people. Are you growing in your love and compassion for other people? Are you growing in your love for God? Do you love God? Does your heart overflow with joy as you read his word? And not all the time. This isn't an experience we have perfectly. Again, we're growing into this, but this is the ideal, the end goal. The end goal of our sanctification, our growth in Christ, where on that day there will be no more growth because we will be perfect in him. On that day when Christ returns, we will be a perfect reflection of God's glory. And what does that mean? We will be perpetually overflowing with the love of God. And it will flow out from us to other people. This this is the vision that he has for us. This is who we're meant to become. And and since this is the purpose of the Christian life, this clarifies everything else that you do. Think about it. Why gather for worship? What's the purpose? Have you thought about that in a while? You just do it because you like it? I I like being here. That's why I come here. What happens when you you don't like being here? Because that will happen. There will be times when you don't feel like being here and it doesn't feel good. Or you're like, man, I'm just really benefiting from the preaching right now. There's going to come a time where you don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, my sermons won't be great or they won't connect with you. I, I, you know, what, what about then? What's your purpose in gathering for worship? Do you see what he's giving us? You gather for worship to increase your love for God. So you gather for worship so that your heart, which is pulled in all these different directions throughout the week, is recalibrated and reoriented toward God so that it overflows with love for him and joy in him. And then you make relationships with other people here and you grow in your love for other people. That's why you want to become a person who reflects who God is in love. That's why you read the Bible. That's why you have rhythms of prayer. That's why we invest in the life of the church, so that we can become people whose hearts rejoice in God, whose lives are poured out for the good of others, and so that we become people who regularly confess and repent of our sins and put them to death and resist temptation. We do all of that because of the love of God in us. Okay, that's, that's where we're, we're going. Um, now, what's in the way? What, what's in the way? There are obstacles to spiritual growth. And all types of journeys have obstacles. I, I was reading a book once called uh, uh, Canoeing the Mountains. It's a, it's a leadership book. It's really interesting. The, the, what they do in the book is they take 
the journey, the, the exploration of Lewis and Clark from the 1800s. And they, they examine that, and they use it to draw out leadership principles. And there's something about the, the exploration of Lewis and Clark is when they were commissioned to go and explore the West, see what was out there, the cartographers at the time, the people who were making these maps, there was a belief, a common belief, that the Missouri River, which is insanely long, by the way. I don't know if you've ever seen the Missouri River or been out there, but it's insanely long. They, they believed that the Missouri River just emptied into the Pacific Ocean, that you would follow the Missouri River, and when you got to the end of it, it would just empty into the Pacific Ocean. And so that's what Lewis and Clark believed, and the people who had sent them out. It's like, you guys, take your canoes and go and, and ride this river, and, and eventually you are going to see the beauty of the Pacific Ocean. The problem is they did not expect something to get in their way. Their obstacle is called the Rocky Mountains. So they had no idea. And so they're, they're in their canoes and they get there and where they draw the leadership principles is they have these canoes to go and trek these mountains. And so they, ha they have to bust their canoes. They have to leave them behind. And they have to figure something else out. There was an obstacle that got in their way. Knowing the obstacles that are in your way helps you to know how to reach your destination despite the obstacles. And the Christian life is a journey that is full of obstacles. And I love what John does. He says, I'm not going to take you through every single obstacle that you could ever face. I'm just going to summarize them all in one concept. The world. The world. The world is our greatest obstacle to spiritual growth. John, he says here in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Meaning that the world is something that tries to overcome us. Anything that would keep you from loving God, anything that would keep you from loving other people, obeying God, is an obstacle to your spiritual growth. And this phrase world is used Sort of to, as John Stott says here, to, it's used as the sum of all of the limited powers opposed to God, which make love and obedience difficult. So anything in the world that you would face that is in opposition to God, that makes it difficult for you to love other people, makes it difficult for you to obey God, that is an obstacle. That is the world. Now, some of these obstacles are moral. They're They're moral. The world may try to overcome your heart. You know, John, he, he essentially says back in, in chapter 2, he talks about the, the desires or the cravings of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the, the boasting, the, the pride in what we have. Uh, the world often captivates our hearts, leading us to love the creation more than the creator. It's an obstacle. Now, sometimes the obstacles are intellectual. The world may try to overcome your mind. This is sort of what was happening here in, in these early church, this church that John's writing to. You have false teachers coming in and presenting uh, a, another opinion. Okay, no, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah at all. But you can still get to God. You don't have to go through Jesus. That's an intellectual obstacle. Um, false teaching, we often think of as like crazy ravings of evil people. But the false teaching in John's day was from trustworthy sources. It was reasonable. And most of the heresies that, that we've ever encountered in the history of Christianity have come from biblical arguments. People have gone to the scriptures and they've presented an argument for what they believe is true about God. And it 
doesn't align, but it has come from Scripture. It's not some crazy thing that's coming from the outside. So the world, whether in the church or outside, is anything that would oppose your knowledge, your right knowledge of God. So some of the obstacles are intellectual, and some of the obstacles actually are physical. And, and those are harder for us to relate to. Um, in our lifetimes, we, we never really have had to, had to experience this. But the world may try to overcome your body. And Christians throughout history and around the world, they experience physical opposition through persecution. It, it's, it's a reality. So we shouldn't be surprised by any obstacle that would come up to our growth in Christ. We, we shouldn't be shocked when something stands in the way of us becoming people who love God and others. What we need to do is be able to identify them. What, what are those obstacles in your life? In what way is the world opposing your growth in Jesus? What's standing in the way? Well, anything that competes for the ultimate affections of your heart is an obstacle. Anything that competes for the ultimate affections of your heart. I'm not talking about just the affections of your heart. Lots of things can, can uh, uh, ha- captivate the affections of your heart and it not be a bad thing. It is not bad for your spouse to captivate the affections of your heart. That is good. I hope they do. It's not bad for your children or even your job, your career, your, your role in the church to captivate the affections of your heart. When, when it becomes an obstacle is when it is captivating the ultimate affection of your heart. These aren't just things you love. These are things you can't live without. Meaning you lose yourself as a person if you lose this person if, or if you lose this thing or this role that you have. That's when a good thing that you should love becomes an ultimate thing that you are now worshiping. Because of our sinful natures, we are prone to turn good things into ultimate things, but they will be obstacles to your growth in Christ. Also, anything that, ca- that competes for the center of our lives. So those are the things that we live for, we sacrifice for, we, we give our resources toward, we are living for. A lot of people, their careers become that for them. For others, it becomes your family, where instead of just trying to earn a living to provide for others, to use your gifts to advance God's kingdom, no, you are living for your job or your family. It's like, no, instead of just, you know, being a faithful parent and, and caring for your children, no, you, you are now, they are the center of your life. That everything, surra- everything is surrounding them, and so they have essentially taken God's place. This is, this is an obstacle, okay? And then anything that competes for control or power over your life, anything that is controlling you, it, good thing or bad thing, this is where sinful habits live. The world distracts us from becoming the people that we're meant to become. The world reorients our purpose so that we don't see love for God and others as the greatest end of our lives. So what, what is the way of, of your growth? What is in the way of your growth in Christ? That's a question that you need to answer for yourself. Don't let this week pass by without answering that question. What is in the way? What is making it difficult for me to love other people? What is making it difficult for me to love God and to keep his commandments? It may be a good thing that you've turned into an ultimate thing. It, it might be your job. It might be your kids. It might be your money. It it, it might even be ways that God has gifted you. They they may have become idols. 
Or it may be a bad thing. Your obstacle may actually be a bad thing that you've grown to love. And you would never admit that out loud. But this bad thing, this, this, maybe it's a sinful habit, something, if you were deeply and truly honest, you're like, I love it. It feels too good to let go. It feels too good to leave behind. And I know I shouldn't do this, but I can't help myself. That is an obstacle. Now, the good news, the good news is that for those of us who are united by faith to Jesus, is that the world cannot overcome us. So it's important for us to identify those obstacles. We have to identify what's in the way of us becoming the people God would have us to become. And now we need to see that those obstacles cannot ultimately overcome us. So we've seen where we're going, what's in the way. Now finally, let's take a look at how we get there. What's the path? What's the path? Even in the midst and despite these obstacles that we have, what is our path to reach the destination? The path of spiritual growth is paved very simply and very powerfully with faith in Jesus. Because through him, we overcome the world. We grow into people who love God and others through our faith. All of our love for God and all of our love for other people and all of our obedience, all of it flows from the same source, faith in Jesus. So if the world stands in the way of our spiritual growth, and that's the problem, faith in Jesus is the solution. Because John says that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. I want you to look with me in verses 4 and 5. And I want you to notice how many times John says this one thing in three verses, or in two verses. He triples down on this truth of overcoming the world so that we don't misunderstand him. Look what he says. For everyone who has been born of God... Let's count every time we see the word overcomes or victory or something of that nature. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. There's one. And this is the victory. There's two. That has overcome the world. Three. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Four. Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Before we move on any further, you need to see John is telling you, You, as a Christian, as someone who is connected to Jesus by faith, you overcome the world. You overcome. You win. You have victory. You have power over all of these things that would try to get in your way of becoming who God wants you to be. He triples down on it. Now, the victory that has overcome the world is our faith in Jesus, which, as, as we see here, comes from or results from the new birth. So it is Christians who overcome the world. Those who have been born of God, believe in Jesus, love God and others, keep God's commandments, they overcome the world. Now here's what this means, because we need to be really clear about this. To overcome the world 
simply means that our obstacles cannot ultimately stop us from reaching our destination. That's all it means. The, the things that are in our way, temptation, sin, uh, evil, whatever it is that is in our way that keeps us from loving God and loving other people can't actually keep us from doing those things. We overcome them. So, so this is not a promise for worldly prosperity. Okay, John, John's not saying you overcome the world, meaning you're going to be the most successful people this world has ever seen. You're going to overcome everything. No, this is a victory over temptation. This is a victory over the seductions of the world. This is, this is the power and the ability to trust and live like God's ways are best. Two, two observations we make here. Two conditions that have to be met in order for you to overcome anything that would ultimately oppose you. Two conditions have to be met. First is you have to be born again. In order to overcome the world... We must be born again. It's the new birth that creates faith. Piper says, begetting from God creates believing in the Christian. God, it says we are born of God. Our victory over the world does not originate in us. God acts first. God creates. He begets. Everyone who is first born of God then overcomes the world. So, so we need to be clear. God is not waiting for you to prove yourself worthy by conquering your sin before he will adopt you. He adopts you as his child. He brings you in, and then he empowers you to overcome the world. That, the order of that's really important. So that's the first condition. You have to be born again. The second condition is, in order to overcome the world, you have to have a faith, but not just the generic faith. You have to believe in Jesus. Our faith has a specific object. So he says, if you look all the way back in verse 1, he says it a couple times here in this little short passage. In verse 1 he says, everyone who believes, not just generally, that Jesus is the Christ. Really specific. He's addressing the false teaching that was spreading there, but he's really clear about it. You have to believe that Jesus is your Savior, that, that he is the Messiah. And then if you look at verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes, not just generically, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So I want you to also notice something that, that I think is a little strange in this passage. Because the language of overcoming, or another, word, another way to translate it, your translation may use this word conquer, to conquer conquer, overcome. I was uh, looking at the passage this week, and Jack, he was sick. Uh, our boys are sick. They have, they have the flu. They're at home. Um, but uh, Jack was with me, and we were doing some study, and he was looking, he was reading some of the words, and Jack, sometimes I think he reads better than I do at times, and he just he corrects me on how to pronounce certain words, but uh, he's five, by the way, um, but <laughs> that's why it's supposed to be funny. Um, but uh, Jack saw the word conquer, and he was like, he said, what's that word? And I was like, Oh, conquer. He was like, what's that mean? I, I don't like it when kids do that because I'm like, how do I explain this? Like, I mean, you know, it's just like conquer. You know, you conquer something. 
Yeah, what's that mean? You know? And so we talked about that. And, and all, of the, all of the things I talked about with him is like someone powerful, someone strong coming in, taking authority from someone else. It could be a good person taking authority from a bad person or sometimes bad people take it from good people. But, you know, whenever you think of overcoming or conquering, it's, it's strength. It's power. Here's what's strange. We overcome the world passively. Erica just texted me and said, Jack is six. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Jack's six. Just clear that up there. (laughs) It's strange. Is it not? We overcome the world passively. Faith is passive. When you believe in Jesus, you're doing something. I mean, you're doing something. You've heard the news about him, and you have to intellectually, you know, and emotionally respond. You're doing something. You're active in believing in the historical reality of Jesus. But do you know what faith is at the end of the day? All it is. The reason it's not a work, faith is like receiving a gift. Faith faith is simply receiving the truth about Jesus. And if another angle we could talk we could say about faith, we could say that it's resting, resting in him alone for salvation, receiving and resting. Now, does it sound like a person who's coming to receive and rest? Does that sound like a conqueror? Someone who who is here to overcome all of these obstacles in the world like Satan? Like like all these strong temptations and seductions from the world. It's like, I'm going to conquer you. How? I'm going to sit here and receive something. I'm going I'm to I'm rest. You know? It's strange. Receiving and resting, that's what overcomes the world. When we think about overcoming something, we think of strength. We think of power. But the gospel has turned the world completely upside down. We overcome through our weakness, through our dependence on another. We don't overcome the world through our efforts. We don't overcome the world through grit and hard work. We don't overcome the world through the voting booth or through uh, isolating ourselves from the world. We don't overcome the world through emotional or mystical experiences. We don't even overcome the world through big movements of God in and through the church. John says, you overcome the world. He says it three times. How? Our faith is where the victory is found. We overcome the world through simple faith. Children can overcome the world. Those of us who are unimpressive, who have been ignored and forgotten, we overcome the world. We are conquerors. Those of us who have made a complete mess of our lives can overcome the world. The victory over sin and Satan and every evil thing in this world comes not through our strength or influence, but through simple faith, a dependent resting on Jesus alone. Now, why does it work this way? Well, first, because of faith's power. 
when, when you believe in Jesus, when you have faith, it is evidence of something that's happened in you. God has already done something. When you trust in Jesus, it is evidence that you have been born again. He says it up here in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That came first. You were born of God and then you believed. So, so it comes from that. But then faith, as a result, creates something. It's powerful. It creates a life of love and obedience. When we are resting in Jesus and relying on Jesus, sin no longer has any power over us because Jesus has conquered it. The world itself is robbed of its power because we're resting in Jesus. We're trusting him. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, our pride are all conquered because of what faith is. Faith gives us eyes to see that Jesus is better. You're trusting in Jesus. You're resting in Jesus. You see the superior worth and value of Jesus compared to anything else this world has to offer. And faith is powerful in this way. It is better for us to align our lives with God's will. It is better for us to love other people. It is better to resist temptation, put sin to death. Faith gives us eyes to see that Jesus is better. Okay, but there's something else about faith. So that's faith's power. We also overcome the world through faith because of faith's object. That, that's, that's what's ultimately most important. Ultimately, our union with Christ is where our victory over the world is found because Jesus himself has overcome the world. You're on his side. You're in him. You are, you are found in him. That's why general faith is no good. It's not enough just to say, well, you know, I have some concept of God. I, be I, I believe in God, and I think that if I'm trying to be a really good person, trying to do the right thing, trying to connect with the divine, you know, I think I'll have a decent time in this world, and I'll be able to, to put some of these things to, to death in my life, and I, I think I'll be good with, with this divine being, whoever he is. That's no good. Just believing in God generally gives you no victory over the world. The object of our faith is more important than even the fact of our faith. Our faith gives us victory over the world and is the path to true spiritual growth only when our faith is in the real Jesus, the historical Jesus. You see how John is saying how important the historical Jesus is, the one that he lived among, the one that, the one that he saw and, and, and saw die on a cross and saw after he was raised from the dead. John is saying it's so important for you to believe in him specifically. He's emphasizing that it's those who believe in that Jesus is the Christ. They are the ones who are truly born of God. It's only those who believe Jesus is the son of God who overcome the world. Because through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus has conquered. He has conquered sin. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered the world. So when you unite yourself to him, his victory is yours. We win because Jesus is one. We overcome because Jesus is overcome. John Stott, I love how he put it. He put it like this. The unshakable conviction that the Jesus of history is the Christ, the pre-existent Son of God, who became human in order to bring us salvation and life, enables us to triumph over the world. 
confidence in the divine human person of Jesus is the one weapon against which neither the error nor the evil nor the force of the world can prevail. So what obstacle in your life seems impossible to overcome? What is keeping you from growing in Jesus? Maybe it's a particular sinful habit. Maybe it's a temptation you keep succumbing to. Maybe you're just in a rut. Maybe you feel stuck in a state of apathy or complacency. Whatever obstacle you're facing, you need to remember John's words. None of those obstacles can ultimately overcome you because you have victory over all of it in Christ. He is enough and he is better. Listen, I, I do hope you see that the Christian life is a journey. We have, we have a clear destination. We're meant to become people who love God and others. There are very real obstacles standing in our way. The world and all of its moral, intellectual, physical temptations and, and powers. And so we praise God that we've been placed on this clear path of spiritual growth. We grow into who God has recreated us to be, not through our own strength or power, but through faith in Jesus, the one who has conquered all. So my counsel to you this morning is to receive Jesus for who he truly is. Rest in his work on your behalf. And through him, you will be shaped and formed into a whole Christian. Someone born of God, trusting in Christ, loving God and others, and keeping his commands. Through his victory, you will become a person of faith, love, and obedience, and nothing and no one in this world can stop you.